In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 9 to 12, Jesus says these words to his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, what were the context of these words? When did Jesus speak them? Well, it's evening. The disciples have gathered with Jesus to eat the Passover meal. It is the last Passover meal they will celebrate with him. He's told them he is about to leave them in his physical presence. It's a deeply intimate and solemn occasion for them. The instructions and teaching that he gives them are his last before his death. And then the traumatic events that uh, are to follow and that they are to experience in the next few days. And so they will never forget these words. They are burnt into their minds, burnt into their memories. They become the foundation and guide of all their future relationships as his disciples. They will change their lives forever and eventually they will change the world. Now the instructions that Jesus gives them begins at chapter 13 in John's Gospel and it goes on to the end of chapter 17. These words spoken in the upper room where they celebrated the Passover meal together. Jesus begins with an acted parable. He takes a bowl and a towel and he washes each of their feet. And then he says this to them. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, you are to serve one another. Then the meal proceeds, and then at a particular point, Jesus leaves the table. I'm sorry, Judas leaves the table. A departure that only he and Jesus know the reason for. Only he and Jesus knows that in the end, this will be his betrayal of Jesus. 
Then Jesus says to them, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the context in which these words are said. Now the contrast is stark if you think about it. Discipleship isn't a hobby or a kind of compromise interest or an accommodation with the world. It's a binary choice. It's either betrayal or love. You follow Jesus with all that it may cost you or you leave the table. You leave the community of love. And notice that the love required is not just the love of Jesus, it is also the love of one another in the community of Jesus. And then the instruction continues through chapters 14, 15 and 16. With encouragement, Jesus tells them that he will send the Holy Spirit in his place. It continues with promises and warnings, warnings about persecution And then at the end of chapter 17, Jesus reinforces the central theme once again. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So friends, this is the foundation of Christian community and our witness to the world. But to participate in its joys, you must also embrace its demands. So the question we want to look at this morning is this. What does that look like practically, practically within the Christian fellowship, within the local congregation, within the Christian community? What does it practically look like? Second question, what does the New Testament mean by Christian love? So that's our theme. Now, I've just read the passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Famous passage, you know, it's read at sort of weddings and so on. Um, Just about everybody knows that passage. But what does it actually tell us about love, Christian love? You'll notice that it's not a romantic or a philosophical definition of love. It's a very relational and practical definition that's focused on the other person's good. It's a description of how we are to treat one another and behave towards one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. 
It's not proud. It does not dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs, and so on. It's a very practical, relational description of what love is, Christian love. It is focused on the other. But neither is it sentimental or fearful of conflict. Verse 6 says, it rejoices in the truth. Sometimes truth, however painful, must be spoken, but spoken in love and with respect. I think some of the most challenging but important things that I've learned about myself over the years have come from an honest confrontation with a Christian brother or sister who had the courage and the concern for me to tell me something about myself that I probably didn't want to hear. So it's not kind of sentimental or fearful of conflict. But this is all a great challenge for us, this stuff. Because in our fallen natures, we are deeply conflicted, deeply conflicted. Because on the one hand, God made us for love and mutually joyful relationships. Because of that, we desire the fruits of love built into our nature. But on the other hand, our fallen natures cause us to be deeply self-interested, frequently putting ourselves first, indulging the worst side of our natures, our pride, our anger, our impatience, our envy, our lack of self-control, feeling we can say whatever we like and vent our feelings. And yet, of course, we ourselves are so easily offended. And then, having vented our feelings, we seek to justify ourselves with the shallow psychobabble that we've absorbed about repression. Shouldn't repress your feelings. Or the my rights argument of our narcissistic society. You know how it goes. You've been there, just as I have. And then we hear the words of the New Testament again. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs and so on. So love of the other, in the sense that Jesus meant it, is quite a struggle for all of us. We all want to be loved, but on cut price terms. We all want community, but often we are unwilling to pay the price that it calls for. And of course the contemporary culture that we live in reinforces our difficulty to love one another in the way Jesus calls for. There was a time when we all lived in small communities and had to depend on one another to survive. 
has forced us into community relations, into interdependence. But now, in our modern world, we can live almost completely independently of others. Consumerism, the extreme individualism of the affluent West have kind of seduced us deeper into the illusion that we can choose whatever we like without its effect on others, without any reference to any kind of moral constraints, or the illusion that we can live healthy private lives that require no obligation to others. We pay our taxes and expect the state welfare system to pick up the pieces. <coughs> so, while we are called by our Christian faith and values to live differently to this, this cultural pressure hangs on all of us like a dead weight. But if we are to obey the commands of Jesus to love one another, we have to resist this cultural drag. So how do we do this? How do we create a Christian community that enables us to follow Jesus' command to be known by everyone out there by the quality of our relationships? A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another well here are some clues firstly we need to remember that we are called to follow Jesus together all the New Testament metaphors for the church are communal metaphors. The flock, the family, the household, the holy nation, the vine and the branches, the body with its various interdependent parts. Even Paul's graphic image in 1 Corinthians 10 of the Lord's Supper, the broken pieces of the bread are one loaf, the one loaf being Jesus. If I might just indulge in a moment of nostalgia for a, for a while. There's an old working class saying about the wealthy that was used in my youth, which goes like this. The upper crust is a few crumbs held together with a lot of dough. <laughs> well, we could perhaps paraphrase Paul in Aussie idiom like this. The Christian community is a bunch of crumbs held together by a lot of love in Jesus. So our first clue is to remember that all the New Testament pictures of the church are communal. We follow Jesus together. The second clue, remember the acted parable with which Jesus begins his departing teaching to his disciples in John 13 a model of servanthood the bowl and the towel 
Being servants of one another is the basis for a successful Christian community. But it's deeply countercultural in our present society. We expect to be served and we expect to be served now. If any of you work in the sort of um, in shops or any industry which sells things to people, you will be trained to an nth degree about how to kind of serve people. That's what we expect. We, we expect to walk into a shop and be served immediately, to have all our needs met. After all, we're paying for it. That's the culture in which we live. So to become a person who serves others is countercultural. So we need to work out practical ways that we can be a servant to other people. And we can start within the Christian community. Is there a needy person in your congregation you could assist regularly in some way? Is there a lonely person you could befriend or give hospitality to? Or a new person or family to the church that you could integrate through your own hospitality and friendship? Is there a job that no one else likes doing that you could do? Do you volunteer to clean up, wash up, stack the chairs? All those jobs that people tend to avoid doing. The third clue. We have to be very intentional about how we construct and organise our congregational life. Small groups are essential. Communal experiences like residential camps and conferences are great ways to build community. Practical pastoral care structures like meal banks, babysitting clubs, phone or visiting teams to follow up the missing, the sick and the troubled. Emergency relief funds for members. Hospitality and the use of our homes. Service groups committed to serving some need in the wider community of Merry Creek and Northcote. Remember, doing things together builds relationships. And relationships are the Velcro of community. The fourth clue, long-term commitment. Community cannot be built in five minutes. And it cannot be sustained without a significant core of people committed for the long term. This is perhaps our biggest challenge in our highly mobile urban culture. And there's lots of pressures on us. You know, the company wants you to move to somewhere else, to Perth or Mildura or somewhere. Um, there's this constant movement. Um, and so it's difficult to resist that. The fifth clue. Remember, Christian community is not first a sociological and emotional reality, but it is firstly a spiritual reality. 
we are united together in Christ in a spiritual union. Listen to the New Testament again. This is from Galatians 3. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the first reality we must grasp and then try and live by it. Then, secondly, it will become a psychological, emotional and relational reality. Any other basis of Christian community will fail because it will founder on the rock of our individual fallenness and our self-interest. The sixth clue. Remember, we're all different. We all have different tastes in music and books and movies and we have different personalities and so on. There will be people in the local congregation we would not normally choose to mix with. There will be people who are damaged by life and have sharp edges. There are people with quirky personalities that can irritate you. There are people with bad breath and B.O. There are people who barrack for Collingwood. And so it goes on. And so we must embrace the idea that Christian community is based on our mutual individual union with Christ. And this is what makes us in union with each other. A union that we have to work out in practical love. Our fundamental identity as Christians is not in race, it's not in gender, it's not in education, it's not in class, it's not in our vocation, but it is in Christ and the values of his kingdom. That's where our fundamental identity lies. Now, can that make us be uncomfortable in the world in which we live? Frequently. And we need to realise that we in the West now live in a socially and morally disintegrating culture. A culture that's gradually rejecting or losing its ethical heritage in the Christian faith. Therefore, we must become much more intentionally a Christian counterculture. In our individual lives, in our families, in our households, in our local congregations. Living out the values of the kingdom of Jesus whose final fulfilment is our horizon of hope. Then we may begin 
to sharpen our cutting edge in the culture in which we're set. Let me close with Paul's charge to the small and relatively new congregation at Colossae. It was a multicultural, first century Greco-Roman city. A congregation made up of people not long converted to Christ. Converted out of a pagan culture of moral decadence, self-indulgence and great social inequality. This is what Paul says to them. As God's chosen people, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have called us to a high calling. You know that our natures find this hard. We are so drawn to our own self-interest rather than the interest of others. Forgive us, Lord, and grant us the strength and the power of your Holy Spirit to change, to live over and above our self-interest, to learn to love like you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.